how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Like many of us, Ben Smithard spent his childhood watching movies. When he decided to enter the business, he made his way into cinematography with commercials and music videos. He struggled, but eventually made his way into TV and film, with credits including the second best exotic Marigold Hotel, Goodbye Christopher Robin, Blinded by the Light, and Downton Abbey. In this interview, he talks about research before meeting with a director, how he uses paintings to describe the hypothetical look of a film, what it means to refine ideas during pre-production, why storyboarding isn't always necessary, how he collaborated with costume designer Anna Robbins, who we spoke with in episode 175, the unique visual differences between the PBS series and the film Downton Abbey, and how the industry has changed with excessive special effects. If you enjoyed this interview, join thousands of viewers for the new YouTube series Creative Principles, which also dissects films, series, and more. I think I just spent, like a lot of people in our business, just spent most of my childhood watching movies, and, and then I didn't, I didn't have any family in business at all. So then I just tried to spend years trying to work out how to get into the business. Took a lot of photographs because that was the only way that I could have any sort of connection with cinematography. And then I eventually ended up at art college and film school. So, and then, and then I, then I just started working on music videos in the '90s, in the early '90s. What were some of the difficulties for you in the beginning? How did you first transition from shorts and photographies to like a full-length feature? Well, it took a long time because, I, as I said, I was I I started off in in, in music videos, and then I did a lot of commercial. I still shoot commercials to this day, and uh, it took a long time. There was a there was a point when I I was desperate to shoot narrative drama, whether it be TV or features, and. I just couldn't get arrested on a film set because they just didn't want commercial DPs. So uh, eventually I got a, I got a break with a, a director that I know to this day about 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, on a TV episodic um, detective kind of show. Um, and I shot that and then, and then I started doing TV, more and more TV. And then eventually I got my first feature film. Uh, but it took a long time. It was it was a hard struggle, to be honest. It wasn't easy. When directors uh, seek you out now, what are they looking about? Like, how would you define your style as a cinematographer? It's to be honest, Brock. I I I I hope that I don't just have one style. I mean, the thing is, I've done lots of different types of projects. I mean. I mean, I must admit, a lot of my feature films have been period movies because I love shooting historical films. So, um, 
if I sh- a lot of the films that I've shot, you know, whether it be Henry the Fourth or The Dresser or King Lear or projects like that, I mean, it's like having a really great history lesson, you know. Um, and I and I those are the kind of films that I do enjoy watching. So I think I think directors know me for that. Um, it doesn't mean I can't do everything out every other type of cinematography, but um, I, I think that people gravitate towards that. To be honest, um, it's I would love to do. I'd love to have a bigger, broader range of work on my CV, but uh, I just have to keep struggling on to find different types of projects. But I think that's the same with a lot, a lot of people, a lot of DPs. They sometimes they get pigeonholed, and sometimes they try and break out. And there are a few, there are some DPs out there who really managed to do every type of project, which is, which uh, I would love to do as well. You see. Besides your your resume, your CV, what do you kind of do before you start a film? What kind of research do you personally do before you take on a, a new project? Well, it depends on the it depends on the film. I mean, as soon as I get the script, I start thinking about because you have obviously I get the script and then I have a meeting with the director and then I've got to. I've got to jump through the hoops to get the film. So I need to bring something to the table with that generally in that very first meeting because that that because uh, a lot of a lot of what's expressed in the film making process some of it is comes from that very first meeting. So um it depends on the film and it depends on and the period setting if we're talking about period films if if it was something set in the 1960s I would use most likely use photographic references. I would, I would just use. I'd endlessly try and find the, 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 the look of the film by using f- photographic references, and then that that goes for anything contemporary. With something that goes beyond, it goes back b- beyond the 20th century. Then you're into using paintings or other films. Um, but I, I would use paintings on a lot on a lot of films, but. Um, that that trying to find the right type of painting to use paintings to use as a reference is hard work because you know it, they don't immediately come to you don't immediately go with that's the one it takes a long time I remember Ridley Scott was I think searched relentlessly to find a reference for Gladiator and there's there's a painting which is quite obscure that he used uh, but he found it it took I think it took, even took him a long a long a long time to get there and and, and he has. A whole load of assistance, but what I'm doing, I'm doing it all on my own. Um, so you get there; it just takes it takes a while because you want to be able to go in and go. This is what I think it is, because uh, you're 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 opening up your thought process to the, to the director. So you, you you need to make sure that you're on the same wavelength. Uh, I mean, sometimes that sometimes you'll you'll go in and have a meeting and I'll go, look, this is what I was thinking. And on the odd occasion, there's a director will go, well, that's look at this picture, which is we've, we've chosen the same picture. This is So you're on the same wavelength to start. And then once you get on the same wavelength, then you can just, you can refine those references and then start to go, well, this, we, we, we understand where we're going with the film. What we need to do now is just refine our own ideas. So, and that's a process you do during pre-production. Is it all about the visual when you're doing that, if you're looking for a painting, or is it also about like the feeling a painting might represent or something emotional like that? Um, I mean, it, 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 it's everything, to be honest. It's definitely something, you're definitely trying to get a feeling, it's not just the look of the painting at all, or, or the look of the photograph, or the, you know, what's there. It's, it's, 
it's that you're. Tr- I mean, it has to fit in with the somehow with the story of the film. But you, but that's something you discuss on a regular basis. Is is what the scene is trying to say, what the story is, what the plot is, and how does how does that reference fit in? And some of them can be quite obscure, and you need to really try and explain them because they're not obvious when you look at a reference. You really need to explain it and go, well, I've got this idea. I'm not sure exactly how we should do it, but I think this would work with this particular character. And and it, it, it could just be some sort of visual metaphor. And it can be quite subtle, but it's but at least at least we're talking along this. I'm just trying to get to a point where I can talk with the director and we totally understand each other completely. Um I mean, it doesn't. You know, I, I mean, he has to translate to that to the actors. So the actors don't need to really understand some of the visual metaphors that I'm doing. They become part of this collage that uh, we're creating. So um, it's an interesting point, but it, it's just a slow process um, to, to 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 take a visual image and then put the emotion and the story and the pathos and the heartbeat of the plot in the story into that into those images so with Downton Abbey you've you've obviously got this gigantic you know pile of source material what were some of the differences uh you guys wanted to do you know as far as taking this to the big screen what are the major differences from the tv show well I mean it started with the producers because they they gave me a really good brief I mean I had worked with the producers before but they gave me a really good brief and and they kind of let me go uh, they weren't. They didn't. They they didn't kind of. You know, they they understood that I knew that there was an inbuilt audience, so you couldn't take it too far away from what the audience would expect. But you but you needed to. I needed to. But they tried to impress upon me. But it needed it needed to have an an in its own way an epic cinematic quality, which is. Which is a, a little bit nebulous, so it's a little bit difficult to define what cinema is sometimes. Apart from the fact that obviously the the real difference between cinema and television is in in a, in a cinema you have the undivided attention of the of the audience, whereas on TV you don't. But um, but I I because I had such a good brief from them, it allowed me to 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 as long as I kind of. Worked within the parameters of what the, what the film could be, or what you know, High Clear House had to look like. High Clear House. It didn't. I, it, what it allowed me to do is it is to is to is to make it more cinematic. Is to make, give it a bigger canvas, and I did that with the camera. I did it with the lighting. I did it with how I shot it. Um, you know, lots of little details, and and sometimes they're little baby steps, but they all add up. But in my head, because I've shot quite a few period feature films, and and, and that's what I do mostly now, is that in my head, I'm, I'm just, every time I'm looking through the viewfinder of the camera, I'm just thinking how it's going to look 40 foot across and 25 foot high, if you see what I mean. So, and and it, it's, it's, it was important to do that. It didn't, it's, it, if you don't care if it ends up being a lot of, a lot of quite posh people talking in rooms, in, in quite nice rooms, but you know that i mean some of the scenes are in the, were in the script and 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 some of the and and some of it wasn't some of it we had to invent and we had to create and we had to embellish 
um, what was there to make it appear to be a much bigger film. I mean, I was, in my head, I'm you know I, I always have huge ambitions for every film I shoot, but I do have I had an ambition to make it like a David Lean movie of from you know for 50 years ago because those ambitious epic kind of grand scale feature films is what I grew up on um, when I was young and that's what impressed me most about cinema and I love historical epics and I tried to it can only go as, as far as the story allows you but I every single bead of sweat was just put into making it as as, as as big as I possibly could and as grand as I possibly could because I think that that's it's part that was part of life in that in that time before the before the second world war before this before life changed forever in the in the second world war and and, and and the story tells you that it tells you that they they don't know whether they can carry on keep keep this kind of lifestyle going because it is kind of ridiculous that you've got you know, very small family with all the money, and then all the servants are so uh, you know that you know that it's their life to work for these people. So um, it's it's, and I just wanted I just wanted the audience to just get completely lost in the in the in the film with all this visual splendor. You know, we had great I had great collaborators that production designer, the costume designer, the makeup designer, they were all amazing to work with. So we had a great time doing it as well. So I think there was, there was a lot of love put into the process of the filmmaking. And I think it shows on the screen. So I also interviewed Anna Robbins, the costume designer for Downton Abbey not long ago. How, how did you guys kind of collaborate on set? What were some of those conversations like? Well, I'd never worked with Anna before. I know that she had done the show. So but I remember going to a meeting. There was a very early meeting about costume where she had some of the original costumes and she had some of the newer ones that she was doing. And she and then she went through with all a lot of swatches and references, photographic references. And there was just the producers and the director and myself and the makeup designers there. And, uh, and I'd never met Anna before, and I was I, I immediately I was immediately impressed with Anna from the word go, from literally the from from hello. I was just like, wow, I think she was amazing. And then, I mean, I, I always say with costume designers on period films, I don't really want to clip their wings. I want to let them fly. I, want, I, I just want them to, to do what they think is right. And, and I'll always be there to, to help and discuss their choices. And I just had a great relationship with, with Anna from the word go all the way to the end of the filming process. And, and um, but she would always show me everything, and she showed me her ideas. And, and when she was choosing materials, she would come and go. She would come and show me the material on set, and go, "What do you think about this? And if we had this, would it do this?" And, and, and so she was just great. And you don't always get that from costume designers. And most of them are great. But I mean, I, I worked with some really good ones over the last few years, over the last ten or fifteen years. But. It was just the fact that it was, it just felt, it almost felt too good to be true because it was really collaborative. But I had the same relationship with the makeup designer and all of her team. And I'd never worked with her before. And, and she was, she's just fantastic. She's just become a favorite of mine. Um, uh, and I just, I just did another feature film with Anna, the costume designer, with Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman. And, and, um, and that was amazing too. So 
she's just a very talented woman and very, very, very easy to work with. So you've done a lot of uh, period pieces, as you mentioned. How do you kind of see the changes of the industry? Uh, were, were some of the films, you know, especially the giant Marvel movies, are all almost all CGI? Do you see that as something different from cinematography? It depends. I mean, I've not done a Marvel movie, so I don't know. I mean, I, the kind of films that I do, is I, I think I'm obviously made in a very different manner. They're a different process. Um, you know, all the films that I've done, I've operated the camera on every single one, and I think a lot of DPs don't do that on the bigger movies because there's just probably too much to to do. Um, obviously, a lot of those films is, is a lot of as a lot of. There's, I mean, it's just full of CG, which is great. That's not, I don't have an issue with that at all. Um, but most of the films that I shoot, especially and, and down to the perfect example, is that I shot every apart from the drone footage. Obviously, I couldn't have shot, I couldn't shoot that. But even then, it was, we were directing exactly where that drone went. I mean, every other image on the film is is shot through my viewfinder. I had some. We had other cameras doing the bigger scenes, of course, but. I'm behind the camera all the time. We don't have second units. There's no second units on, on a film like Downton. You don't really need it. There's no action units. There's no, so you have this control over the image, and, and this all the way through the filmmaking process, all the way through the shoot on Downton. Even though there's a lot of cast in there, and it's quite a big number, still manage to keep a certain level of control uh, because everything's in camera. It's not. It's not... It's not created afterwards in a CG world. There's no virtual reality to any of this. It's just real. It's old school filmmaking, for want of a better word. And and even when I, I mean, obviously DPs grade their films as well. But I mean, we spent nearly a month after the film was edited, literally going through. I mean, a different different. Uh, you know, different versions for different. We did a 4K Dolby Cinema grade, which for a week. Which, which is a completely different kind of color space and a different kind of uh, cinema experience because that looks, I mean, that looks really stunning. I mean, unfortunately, there's only 200 cinemas in the world that can show Dolby 4K cinema, but but that's just that would just blow your mind. It's just so amazing. I mean, if you when you watch it in the cin- normal cinema, you think, well, there's a lot of detail. It's just like you know, when you see the Dolby version, it's like, I mean, that's like. It's really amazing. So that's the difference between what I do in a Marvel movie. Um, there are VFX and there's some, there is some CG in Downton, but not a huge amount. And the, but what's there is, has been done really well. But you've got to bear in mind, I still shoot a lot of commercials. So on those commercials, there's lots of CG a lot of the time. So I've done it all. I just don't... Nobody's offered me a Marvel movie yet. So I've never... I've not had to go down that kind of method of filmmaking, which is a which is just a bigger animal. It's, it's a, it's, you know, and, and things are previous before. I and mean, we didn't, you know, something like Downton. I mentioned this to somebody recently, I think a director who asked me, and and they were astounded that we didn't storyboard anything on Downton. We story, the only, there's a sequence in the middle of the film with, with, with Big Parade and a lot of horses. We storyboarded that. But, but everything else in the film is not storyboarded. Because if you know the story, if you know the story inside out, you know exactly what you're doing. It doesn't need to be pre-visualized in that way, but obviously a Marvel film is all pre-visualized by the CG department. So there's, it's a different style of filmmaking. Um, it's not to say that I can't do the Marvel thing, but I say nobody's asked me. So I don't. 
Does that leave kind of more room for like spontaneity? When you, I mean, a Downton set, I imagine everything's quite beautiful, so you can't really get you know necessarily get a bad shot. But what kind of freedom do you have by not storyboarding? Well, the the thing that it gives you, it gives you, um, it gives you a lot of freedom because it also gives the actors a lot of freedom. You're not forcing them to be in. This is where you are, and this is where I mean. Uh, I mean, I, 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 my experience with actors is, is, has always been really, really good, and I love to give them the, the freedom of the space that they're working in. The same as they would have in, in a theatre, but you've just got four walls or you've got the location uh, logistics. Um, I mean, I, to be honest, the other thing is that I can I visualize the whole film in my head anyway. I mean, when we when you scout the locations and then you go and recce them again, and then you go and recce them with all the crew, and then you maybe go back to them again, and I photograph everything. So I kind of have photographic storyboards, even though there's nobody in them, so to speak. Um, I do find that it allows me to work quickly and also it allows me a little bit of flexibility if I don't storyboard. Um, I'm not so sure it would have been a better film if it had been storyboarded. I'm I'm pretty sure it wouldn't, to be honest, Um, uh, because there's more spontaneity to be had by not storyboarding. Um, But uh, it's interesting because a lot of films I do aren't storyboarded very much and sometimes even if you do storyboard by the time you because it's obviously done uh, quite early in pre-production if you do it too early by the time you get to shoot the board the storyboards are a little bit out of date so if you're not careful you end up wasting a lot of money but I you know most films I've done I visualize I know what it is in my head um, and it means that you get a lot of questions from people but you know what that's no problem at all. I don't have, you know, that I, if somebody needs to know, I tell them exactly what I'm thinking. And, and the same with the director, you know, I mean, I do try to make sure that the crew who are working on the units know, uh, you know, I try to communicate everything that we are thinking. So the director doesn't, they don't ask the director a million questions because obviously that's, that's a big part of the director's job, answering questions from everybody. (laughs) So when you look back at your career, is there any advice you wish you had in the beginning or any advice you'd pass on to those coming up who want to be cinematographers and get into the business? As uh, an advice I wish I'd had, um, I think I probably would have spent a bit more time in America. Um, that's the first bit of advice, um, although that's not going to work for everybody. Um, I think the most important thing for advice for other people coming up into the business is 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 to, I mean, the most important thing is to, for a DP is to shoot. So whether you're t- at least taking photographs at, at the very, very least. Or, or, and when I started, it was all celluloid. It was all film. So it was, it was much more difficult to, to shoot all the time. Now you can just go off and shoot with anything, even with your iPhone or whatever. So, um, But I think the real key thing is to, 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 I mean, a lot of people would say this, is don't jump before you can walk because it's good to shoot. But the thing is that at some point you're going to need to know the craft of your of your of your business of your work, and you will only get that by assisting other people. I think um, I didn't spend a huge amount of time assisting, but working for other other DPs. But I did spend seven years pretty solidly in my from 20 to 27 years old before I moved as a DP, 
And without that, I wouldn't be the DP I am now because I was learning off people who were much more experienced than me, much more knowledgeable. And I think that the, the, that's the real key thing is that you need uh, most of cinematography as a craft and and you need to you need to learn that craft. Just do you know what I mean? You wouldn't um you wouldn't ask somebody to to be a, to, to to build a a beautiful armchair that's just got basic woodwork skills. Do you see what I mean? It's it's the same with cinematography and I think that it's it's getting lost a little bit because because it's quite easy now to create really quite beautiful images. Um because there's so many different ways of doing it, and it's a, it's now it's now become a big business. Um, whereas I think it was a lot smaller before. But I, so you can create really good images. But the thing is that, that you, that's an image you've probably chosen to do yourself. Whereas in filmmaking in general, it's usually somebody else's idea, and you need to have an understanding of how to do so many different styles of photography, cinematography, lighting camera work camera movement and all it's all logistics it's all logistics and it's all about working with people and the bigger the crew you get i mean the downtown crew was very big it was like 120 people every day but i've done movies in india where you'd have 500 people a day and you need to be able to it's not just your departments you need to be able to it's it gets to a point when you if you the more experience you get that you can start to help other people out you can help the sound department out and you can help the the prop men out and 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 then it becomes a real collaboration because you're really helping and guiding and driving the shoot and i get that from operating the camera i can drive the shoot and and because i've got quite a lot of experience now i know exactly what i'm doing and exactly what i and how to get it and and it's just a great experience when you can start helping other people and answering their questions then filmmaking makes sense to me and, and but it only comes with experience and I think that's the advice, is just learn your craft. Thank you for tuning into the show. If this is your first time listening, please log on to iTunes or SoundCloud and give us a rating. Providing a rating or sharing content is one of the best ways to help the series grow. Make sure to also follow or like us on your favorite platforms like Instagram, Facebook, or the new YouTube series we've started. And check for daily updates over at creativeprinciples.live.